Welcome back to The Duck Stops Here, a podcast from the University of Oregon. I'm Michelle Joyce Fife, and today we're joined by a California-based alumna, Dr. Parneet Pal. Parneet attended medical school in India at the age of 17 and has followed her passion for learning and teaching throughout her time at the University of Oregon and beyond. Parneet is the chief science officer at Wisdom Labs, a Bay Area-based company focused on lessening stress, burnout, and loneliness in the workplace. She says research shows that compassion actually makes us healthier and companies do better when their employees are compassionate. Loneliness has a huge impact on our health and well-being. You know, if you're lonely, it, it puts you at greater risk for developing depression. Uh, You're more likely to develop dementia. It puts you at greater risk for developing those chronic lifestyle-related diseases. But then from a work perspective, being lonely or being stressed has a huge impact on not just our productivity, but uh, our creativity. You know, the kinds of ideas and energy that we show up uh, to work with. And obviously that affects our performance and our relationships at work. And this has huge implications for business outcomes. Parneet continues to foster interdisciplinary health innovation as a TED-Med scholar, and she recently led a workshop at the TEDx conference in Glasgow, Scotland, where she gave a talk about the environment and sustainability. My colleague, Caitlin Elwood, will be conducting today's interview. She's the Associate Director of Regional Engagement at the University of Oregon. Their conversation ranges from the science of well-being the necessity of compassion, the benefits of a plant-based diet, and much more. A big welcome to Parneet and Caitlin. Welcome to the Duck Stops Here podcast. Parneet, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure, Caitlin. (laughs) I know that you received your master's from the University of Oregon, and you've had the journey before that and after that. So if we could just start at the beginning, um, as in when you were a child, what where you grew up, and then what brought you to the University of Oregon? So, Caitlin and I grew up in in Bombay, in India. My childhood was uh, a very happy one, and very I, because Bombay is a metropolitan city, uh, I was exposed to many different cultures growing up, and um, I was a bit of a nerd, so I loved going to school and learning. And you know, back in the day when I was growing up in India, um, there was a culture of girls becoming doctors and uh, boys becoming engineers. And I have a brother and, um, you know, no surprises, he became an engineer and I decided to become a doctor. That was sort of my destiny that was laid out to me uh, from the day that I was born. And actually I didn't really mind it because I loved biology and I was really interested in the human body and well-being. I was also noticing that I was very interested in one special aspect of human well-being as it related to medicine, which was sports medicine. So I was really interested in treating athletes at the time and there wasn't a really good sports medicine program in India back then. And so that was, that became one of my prompts, you know, on the one hand, I really wanted to explore the world. I wanted to come to the United States of America. I had heard a lot about the American dream and I wanted to see if I could live the American dream. And, um, but also there was this desire to explore what sports medicine might have to offer. And so as, as, as I was looking into different programs, I came across the master's in exercise and movement science for the uh, specialty in sports medicine that the University of Oregon had to offer. Uh, and it sounded really intriguing. And of course, you know, uh, University of Oregon has a really good track history uh, in, in all senses of the word in this area. 
And I imagine there was some level of culture shock when you got to Eugene, because was Eugene the first place you came from after being in India? Yes, it was. A, it was the first place in North America. And you're absolutely right. It was, it was a culture shock, but not probably a culture shock in the traditional sense of the word, because, you know, Bombay is a big, bustling um, city, uh, very crowded. Um, there's lots of air pollution, unfortunately. Uh, and um, and I love Bombay and, and that's where I grew up. So for me to land in Eugene, which was this small, very pretty university town uh, with very few people, uh, I would have to say yeah, it was kind of a reverse uh, culture shock for me. I know as I sit here, I'm in Eugene right now. It's like silent outside of my window. So <laughs> it's still that way, even you know a few years later. But um, how was your time in Eugene and, and on campus? So I really um, loved my time in Eugene. It was very different from, as you can imagine, where I grew up in India. It really seeded this appreciation of the environment that has kind of carried through for me. And there were two other things that really stood out for me. One was the teaching assistantship that I had. I was teaching in the anatomy lab. And it, for me, became, you know, in hindsight, a really great revelation of something that I love to do, which is to teach. And I think that was, I didn't know it back then, but I really enjoyed it you know, while I was at Eugene. And then I found that I carried that kind of teaching thread throughout everything else that I've done in my career. And to this day, that is the activity that I really, really enjoy the most. And I find really impactful and uh, fulfilling. So I really have that teaching assistantship to, to thank for it. And then the other thing that really stands out for me from a campus point of view is the friendships that I made that I've kept in touch with. And one of my best friends now, Aud, and hey, shout out to Aud. I hope she listens to this podcast. Uh, she's back in Norway, where she's from. Uh, so Aud and I have become really close friends and we've stayed in touch and we've um, traveled many different parts of the world together. So, um, yeah, I'm really thankful for my uh, campus experience. What were you thinking? So when you started in Eugene, did you have any ideas? You, had, you talked about how you were thinking of medical school, even when you were back in India. But did you have specific thoughts as you were in Eugene preparing for that? And then when did you make the decision to proceed with that afterward? So actually, I had finished medical school in, in India. Okay. So because, uh, you know, India has a different medical school system. So you can actually go to medical school straight after high school, which is what I did. And I know it was, you know, I went to medical school when I was 17 and I was done. Oh. Yes. Uh, so that was quite the experience. And then I think I was, I think Eugene for me and doing the master's there really helped me um, take some time to reflect on what I wanted to do in my medical career. And um like I mentioned, I, I was really intrigued about sports medicine, the idea that I could work with athletes. Um, so the, you know, my master's in exercise and movement science gave me a really good foundation for that. And that really helped me then decide to continue pursuing my medical career uh, by finishing my medical residency in the United States. So uh, I chose to do my specialty um, is physical medicine and rehab uh, with a focus on spine and sports. Um, and so I, you know, took all the exams and I ended up uh, getting into really terrific programs. So I did my internship at Columbia and then I did the rest of my medical residency at Harvard. Um, so, yeah, so that, you know, that, that was the uh, path that I, that I took right after um, University of Oregon. Go ahead and tell the audience here, why did you follow your passion? Like, what do you think allowed you to do that? And I mean, do you think it was just a, a combination of all of your experiences or... 
did you have a specific moment where you realized like, this is what I want to do? So, you know, back then I, I was feeling this pull towards the preventative aspect of health and well-being. Uh, and I was also really interested in business. And I started thinking about if somebody in our society wants to stay well, where do they go? And what I came up against was the fact that, well, it's probably, you know, some people might go um, explore uh, a very exotic uh, health program at a, you know, destination wellness spa. Uh, there are other folks who might go to executive health clinics where they might have, or, or a private personalized medicine clinic uh, where they might really draw up this plan for their well-being with their physician. And actually, those ended up being two different tracks that I explored. So I ended up directing a couple of wellness spas. I ended up designing programs for executive health practices and working with patients there. Uh, and then I realized that this is actually a very, very tiny fraction of the population. And if I was to have a broader impact, I needed to think about where else that might be. And that's when I realized that, well, uh, the place where we spend most of our days uh, is at work. And so this idea of how I could help people stay well uh, even in the workplace, became very intriguing for me. So, so that's where I ended up sort of moving my career. And so what I've done for the past six years now as chief science officer at Wisdom Labs, we're a San Francisco-based company. We solve for stress and burnout and loneliness in the workplace. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of the teaching and the content design and the curriculum. Um, but really the emphasis here for me was thinking about how can I help people stay well um, so that they don't um, need to use the healthcare system or use it minimally? So that's, uh, I hope that gives a better sort of frame for um, my, my very non-traditional career path. Yes, well, you somehow ended it. I mean, is Wisdom Labs, what, would you, what sector is it in? Is it, is it wellness or is it tech or is it business? I mean, is it just a, how would you define what, what it is? It's all of the above. So, and, and, and I, think that's, I think that's true for a lot of uh, new um, companies and businesses that are emerging. I think more and more you have to be able to integrate many, you know, you have to be a thriving business. Um, <clears throat> you have to be able to integrate technology if you want to scale your products and services that you are using. And of course, Wisdom Labs it focuses on mental, social, and emotional well-being. So it's, yeah, it's, it's all of those things together. Yeah, that's really interesting. And can you name, I mean, without giving away too many, like, I guess, insider secrets, but like an example <laughs> of what, what, if you go into a company, what is something you would do with them? Like practically speaking, you know, and I know COVID maybe has changed how you, how you do it, but one, one example of what you've done within a company. So even before COVID in, in one survey that was done by an insurance company, Cigna, 61% of Americans reported feeling lonely, uh, which means that you don't have at least even one person that you can turn to um, in, you know, when you're feeling sad or when you're feeling happy. And, uh, and that's really interesting because loneliness has a huge impact on our health and well-being. You know, if you're lonely, it, it puts you at greater risk for developing depression. Uh, it, you're more likely to develop dementia. It puts you at greater risk for those, you know, being stressed and um, developing those chronic lifestyle-related diseases. But then from a work perspective, being lonely or being stressed has a huge impact on not just our productivity, but uh, our creativity, you know, the kinds of ideas and energy that we show up uh, to work with. And obviously that affects our performance and our relationships at work. And, and this has huge implications for business outcomes. So a lot of 
uh, you know, upwards of $300 billion a year are, um, go towards the treatment of stress and related disorders in the workplace. So it's, it's obviously a huge issue for employers. So with Wisdom Labs, what we do is that we take a look at one piece of that well-being equation, which is the stress, burnout, and loneliness. And in thinking of solutions and how we can imp impact that, uh, we've we use the science of mindfulness, resilience, and compassion. So there's a lot of great evidence in the past 20 to 25 years now that shows that when you practice uh, mindfulness and compassion, 5, 10, 15 minutes a day consistently, um, it has many wonderful uh, effects on your health and well-being. So uh, inflammation and stress levels in your cells goes down, your immunity gets better, uh, you become better at, at adopting new habits. Uh, but then from a, you know, from a more um, work-oriented or leadership standpoint, uh, it really helps you to uh, strengthen your attention uh, which, which has a huge impact on your creativity. Uh, it strengthens your ability to regulate your emotions. So which means that you're able to communicate and collaborate with others more effectively. Uh, and it also uh, boosts your levels of empathy and compassion. So your ability to give back and serve others. And all of these are of course really important for building resilience to stress, but they're also very important uh, when it comes to how you show up as a leader at work. And so what Wisdom Labs does is we have, we have both an app, but also communities of practice within organizations. Um, uh, so for example, we work with very large technology companies, we work with healthcare companies, we work with uh, nonprofit um, organizations, and we really go in and help their teams uh, integrate these practices more easily uh, into their daily lives. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. And when you go in, is it something that's considered mandatory for employees to participate in? Or is it something that's optional? I, I guess I'm just thinking of that. So we did something at our work where, um, again, this might be edited out, we'll find out where they um, had, a, they did a wellness challenge. And I think yeah. by making it a challenge, it made people more stressed out, if that makes sense. So I'm just curious, you know, I, from your from your examples, from what you're the, what you've done, you know how effective is it, and do do employees buy in? I guess and not feel like they're being I don't want to say preached to, but you know what I mean. Or is it challenging to get people to buy into that cult? Because it's a culture change you're talking about. I think that's actually the key um, takeaway here is that well-being can never succeed. You know, many different well-being or wellness programs, and the research bears this out too. Um, the ones that are successful are not the ones that are sort of an isolated um, occurrence or something that's thrust upon employees or just sort of a checkbox on the, you know, the list of things that um, the leadership has to do. Um, well-being programs work really well when they're integrated into the overall culture and strategy of an organization. Um, so I'll give an example, you know, one of the clients that we work with is LinkedIn and we have a really great partnership with them because in their culture uh, and value statement, uh, you know, being compassionate features prominently. And all of their leaders emphasize this aspect of, of leadership, of being empathic and compassionate leaders. But then the question becomes, how do you actually build that kind of empathic and compassionate leadership? You know? uh, and this is where programs like Wisdom Labs are really helpful because we, we give you the tools and, and help support leaders and teams build that capacity. But when we do this in that organization, as you can see, it's not something 
um, that was plucked out of the air or that's never mentioned again. It's, it's kind of in the zeitgeist. Everybody is talking about being compassionate anyway, anyway and the, the leaders are talking about being compassionate. Uh, and so it's in the water, so to say. And so when uh, there's a better likelihood then of a well-being program, in this instance, a, a program that builds compassion, that builds resilience through compassion to be successful uh, when you have it embedded in the culture. Right. Okay. And I think, again, I'm not trying to be devil's advocate because I really believe in what, what you guys do and what you're saying, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm just trying to think of the other perspective where like and things I've heard from my own, you know, in my own anecdotally in my own life, but like what is being compassionate and is that subjective, maybe a specific way you teach that within an organization? Compassion simply means noticing when either you yourself or somebody else around you is stressed out or suffering and then being motivated to take action to help alleviate their suffering. And that motivation for action uh, is sort of the defining factor of compassion because, um, and here's where there's a you know, slight difference between empathy, being empathic and being compassionate. So empathy just allows us to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes, right? So, and that can happen sort of at a, um, affective level at an emotional level. So if I see somebody is stressed out, uh, it might, you know, I feel stressed out or I might feel distressed looking at their distress, uh, but it can happen at a cognitive level level where I can get curious about, oh, I wonder what, you know, what's going on with this person. I wonder uh, what's happening in their life to make them feel this way. So this cognitive and affective empathy, and again, we know in the brain, there are different centers in the brain that get lit up uh, when we engage these faculties. But then empathy is not enough because we've all been there, right? You might notice somebody who's suffering, but decide that, you know what, it's, I'm too busy. I have too much on my plate right now. I can't help this person right now. So, so that, that's one outcome of empathy, which is avoidance, right? You just move away from that mm-hmm. suffering. The other um, outcome of empathy is actually emotional distress. So, so you might actually want to help the other person, but when you start engaging with that person's suffering, it's too much for you. And it, it has this kind of emotional toll on you. And so instead of being able to help the other person, you yourself are now feeling as distressed as they were. Um, so that's the second possible outcome of empathy. But then the third possible outcome of empathy is compassion, which means that you can, you know, you may feel a little bit of what the, the distress that the other person is feeling, but very importantly, you engage your cognitive empathy and you say, oh, I wonder what's happening with this person. What are their life circumstances? And then you take stock of, you know, what are the resources that I have available? How can I help this person? And that's being compassionate when you sort of engage that your own resources and say, you know, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z to help this person out um, so that they feel better. And from a well-being perspective, people who are compassionate have been shown to live longer. They have lower inflammation in their cells. So which means that they have um, they're better protected against all of those chronic lifestyle-related diseases that I was talking about. Uh, they live longer. Uh, and then they also tend to have better relationships because we would all want to be and hang out and be friends with somebody who is, who is giving and kind uh, and would help us out. But then from a you know, more organizational standpoint, again, there's a lot of good evidence now showing that cultures or organizations or companies that are compassionate, um, they tend to do better over the long run. Uh, because, uh, you know, their level of customer service is uh, much better. Uh, They retain their talent longer because people want to hang out at a company where everybody is compassionate to one another. Um, The levels of innovation are higher 
because they feel um, you know, psychologically safe. This is another sort of buzzword right now in organizations, which is this idea that you can be yourself. There's a level of respect where, uh, and trust between team members so that if you make a mistake, um, you know, people don't come down hard on you. Everybody understands and supports you. Uh, and so it's in this kind of culture where it's safe to make mistakes that the, the best kinds of innovation happen because you can try out different new ideas. Um, so yeah, so, so there are many, you know, very concrete um, benefits to compassion. And there's a very concrete way of practicing compassion to strengthen this capability uh, and this skill. Um, and I think the, the last thing that I'll say about that is, uh, you know, right now, because we're facing so many challenges in the world, right? I, I mean, COVID ha is obviously the most obvious one that we've all been dealing with for a while. Uh, but when you look at what's happening to our climate, when you look at the inequality gap, uh, when you look at, you know, our, the state of our health, um, the state of our businesses, it just you know, we're facing really huge issues and problems globally. Uh, and this is exactly the, the point in time, and we've all experienced this uh, during the pandemic, where it can just be unbearable. It's really hard um, to be surrounded with all of the stress and suffering, and then to sort of have the energy or the motivation to do something about it, whether for your own self or for others. And so I think it's especially important for all of us now to be developing these skills of mindfulness and compassion, because again, the research shows that compassion allows you when you build that skill, literally the networks in your brain that allow you to lean into moments of discomfort or lean into moments of suffering, get stronger, which means that if there's you know, chaos happening all around you, or you notice uh, some very difficult suffering, instead of getting emotionally distressed, you have the capacity to take a breath, to pause, and to get curious. You have the capacity to engage that perspective-taking um, network in your brain that motivates you to take action to, to help out that person or that situation. And I think right now, this is what we all need. We all need to be um, better equipped so that we, can, we have a level of self-compassion where we're taking better care of our own health and well-being. And then having done that, we have the energy uh, and the insight to then go out uh, and take care of all of these bigger global crises that we're facing. I think what you're saying is, is both making me, it's making me hopeful, but also um, I think there's two ways that I, I feel like I'm seeing how people are addressing these, these hard things you were talking about, whether it's COVID or the climate or, um, burnout from their jobs or, you know, whatnot, or, or tragedies around the world. And um, I think there's a level of people leaning in and you see that all the time that people be, being compassionate, but then also there's escapism is I think the other, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it can be defined better psychologically, but I mean, it's interesting because my sister, when she first had uh, my niece, her first child, she was sort of surprised by the fact she had to teach her everything. So I, what I'm hopeful for is that it sounds like compassion can be taught, you know, and if people who lead by example with an in an organization can actually have this broader impact and, you know, if all the employees see that and, and practice it, they can learn it as well. Um, so that's the hopeful piece. But I also think there's a part of me that's weary because what you see, and, and I don't think it's just technology, but whatever reasons you want to give for why people are not feeling great, there 
they're using some other method to just not think about it. I mean, I'm not sure if that's true scientifically, but that's just, again, from my surface level explanation. (laughs) No, you're actually, that's completely right. Because we have seen, you know, through the pandemic, we have seen uh, much higher rates of anxiety and depression and substance abuse. Uh, We've seen loneliness rates getting worse. Uh, Suicide rates have increased. So I think it's really important um, in the compassion conversation to not portray compassion as kind of a, um, sort of a magic bullet or uh, a one-size-fits-all, uh, but to, to really realize that what we are all facing as a society is really hard. And so it's not a, sort of an either-or kind of situation, is, but it's kind of both and. Yes, this is hard, and we have the capacity, if we are willing, to engage in a very powerful way of strengthening our own well-being while also contributing to the greater good. And, you know, I think the the other point that I want to emphasize here is that often, and and this is true for our personal health and well-being, you know, if if suppose there's a particular, you want to lose weight or stop smoking or, or, you know, any kind of personal habit that you might be looking to change, uh, but also uh, as an organization, as you're, as you're trying to think of uh, organizational well-being uh, and resilience, uh, often we, we place a lot of and sometimes too much emphasis on individual responsibility. And we know from the science of behavior change that it's very hard. There's a small percentage of people who, can, who are motivated and who have the drive and who, who can make all these changes and you know, have all these healthy behaviors <laughs> all the time. But most of us need help and support. Most of us are able to make these changes more effectively when our environment and the system that we work with uh, supports these changes. And unfortunately, right now, the way that we have structured uh, our healthcare system, but also just of our businesses and our politics. And again, this is not just in North America, this is a global issue. The way we have structured society is where we're kind of incentivizing um, all the things that make us unhealthy. So when you look at the cost of nutritious food versus the cost of processed junk foods, you see that it's just easier. And especially, you know, we're very lucky to even be having a conversation about having a choice about, for example, what we eat or being able to exercise or or sleep. But most of the world um, does not have access to those kinds of choices and are kind of limited by the um, very inequitable uh, environment that they are surrounded with. Uh, And they don't have that kind of uh, luxury of the choice um, to make, to take better care of themselves. So all that to say that whether it's in a community, a society, an organization at work, uh, or the world at large, I think right now, we all have to collectively think about how do we create these systems of support uh, that enable that kind of behavior change rather than just pointing fingers at individuals or putting people down for not behaving a certain way. Uh, Because again, just from a behavior change and science point of view, behavior change is hard. Uh, It takes a village. uh, And we need to start thinking about how can we change policy? How can we change incentives in the system so that we make it easier and cheaper uh, for people to be able to uh, move and exercise more, have access to the kind of green environments that we want, have access to the nutritious food 
um, that would enable their health, but also in work cultures. And this is really important from a burnout standpoint, because again, there's a lot of misconception about burnout at work, where it's only portrayed as kind of this individual failure. But in fact, the research shows that the individual piece when it comes to burnout is, is a small slice of the pie. Most of burnout is related to um, the organizational culture uh, and the mismatch between the workload and the resources that are at hand, but also the way that conflicts at work are uh, recognized or resolved um, or the uh, opportunities that are available for people to show up and connect with their kind of values and purpose uh, um, uh, and how that translates into the daily work that they do. So very, very big questions. Uh, but I think the, you know, the main takeaway take there is to your point, Caitlin, it's not about pointing fingers or individual responsibility. Yes, we have to take personal responsibility for our lives, of course. And we need to start thinking about how can we start to shift and change these systems uh, that we live in. Wow. I mean, that could speak for so many things, I think, in the United States and like you said, globally. Um, that could be a whole nother conversation, a whole nother podcast. <laughs> yeah. But can you just speak a little bit to that connection between planetary well-being and then individual and workplace health? Yeah. So, you know, this is um, definitely uh, uh, something that I've been tracking um, just on in my own private personal time in the past decade or so. And um, it's, you know, I came across this book called Cradle to Cradle many, many years ago. Uh, by Bill McDonough uh, and Michael Braungart. Um, and it's probably out of print now. But in this book, um, uh, you know, this was uh, an architect and a chemist, and they were talking about this idea of things in our environment going from cradle to cradle rather than cradle to grave, which is how most of our products are made. And they also explored this idea that in nature, nothing is wasted. So all the biological components of nature, you know, whether that's animals or plants, um, they all get recycled and go back into feeding and nurturing this ecosystem that they were a part of. And for me, the, the, the thing that really got me going there was noticing, because I was talking about well-being, I was talking about food and nutrition, and I started to make these connections, these very direct biologic connections between the food on my plate and how that food that I was eating literally impacted the energy, right? Because the food goes into your cells and your cells metabolize that uh, food to produce energy. And this is the energy that allows me to do everything in my life. So literally who I am, my mood, my productivity, the impact, the decisions that I make in every single moment, even right now, as we're having this conversation, Caitlin, our ability to show up to each other in whichever way we are doing so is a result of the quality and quantity of the energy that our mitochondria are producing in ourselves. And when you look at where that food source, that food on your plate, where does it come from? The quality of that food depends on the quality of the soil. And what we're noticing is that the quality of the soil, unfortunately, has deteriorated globally because of our you know, chemical and industrial agriculture practices uh, and other kinds of industry and pesticide use. So the soil health is deteriorating, which means that the quality of the food that we are eating is deteriorating. On the flip side, the, all of our extractive uh, industries investing 
in producing more and more, you know, staying with sort of the nutrition theme, the, the, the junk and processed foods that are cheaper and easier to buy. And so I was noticing that most of uh, the diseases that we treat uh, from a health and well-being perspective, uh, the majority come from uh, you know, our current diet is the leading cause of disease and death. So obesity, diabetes, stroke, heart disease, cancer, all of those things that I was talking about, our diet or um, our horrendous diet uh, is the source of and the leading cause of that kind of death and disability. And we have, you know, one in three people globally that are overweight, where, and, but we also have one in 12 people who are hungry and undernourished globally. And the, the diversity of food on our plate is decreasing. So, you know, as I was noticing these impacts on our health, concurrently, these same food systems, meaning the way that we produce and the way that we consume our food, has had an astronomical uh, effect on our um, ecosystems. So the way that we grow and produce food has resulted in 70% of the biodiversity loss on land and 50% of the biodiversity loss on water. And I want you to just like take a pause and think about that, that the food on your plate is responsible for that kind of biodiversity loss. It's responsible for 80% of deforestation and it accounts our food systems, the way we produce and transport and process and package foods and sell food uh, accounts for uh, 25 to 30% of our greenhouse gas emissions. And so for me, this was a, a kind of a revelation to realize this very direct connection that we have and how it's affecting climate. But on the flip side, and this is the good news, is that it's also very empowering because this means that, you know, often when we start thinking about the climate and health and well-being, uh, it can be very disempowering. It's very easy, as you were mentioning before, you know, just like with our personal health, even when we think about planetary health, um, you know, we can get dejected pretty quickly and discouraged pretty quickly because it's like, you know, what, what will me, my soul uh, role be in this, in this mess that we've created? And when you look at the connection between the food that you're eating, that's fueling your energy, that's literally making you the person that you are in any given moment, um, then that gives you a sense of agency because now you have a very practical but also a very direct connection with which you can start influencing um, the whole climate conversation. So you can start by looking at what are the diets that are good for you personally that are going to give you that kind of energy and allow you to have the impact in the world that you want and that are good for the soil and the climate. And guess what? It turns out that they're not different diets. The diet that's good for your health is also good for the planet. And uh, in fact, there's a lot of research now on what are called planet-based diets or planetary diets. And the, the general theme, because obviously there's going to be local variation, uh, but the general theme is that these diets tend to be plant-rich uh, and they tend to be um, uh, very low on red meat and processed foods and junk foods uh, and dairy. Um, so... And, and they include a lot of uh, biodiversity when it comes to the plant foods that are included. So, um, so yeah, so, that, so for me, that's a very important and also very practical way that I think all of us as citizens can start to get engaged in this conversation. And, you know, the climate conversation is a huge one. Uh, the food system is just one part of that bigger equation. But I think 
because it literally impacts everything that we do uh, as individuals, I think it's a great way for us to start to build that kind of awareness, but also then to start to engage our compassion is, wow, now that I know that this is the effect that it's having on me and on the environment and on our society, what, what, how can I help? What, is, what can I do? Um, to make the situation better. So it might be something that you do, you know, changing your own personal lifestyle, whether it's the food or the kinds of energy that you use or the transportation that you use. Uh, but it could also be, you know, who are the kinds of people that you vote uh, in as your leaders uh, because they are going to have a huge part uh, to play in, in the kinds of policy uh, and the way that, uh, you know, unfortunately, um, we, you know, even though more and more companies and more and more governments are beginning to wake up and take action, which is great, um, this is what we want. Uh, but as of now, we are still very, very far away from reaching the, the, pa the Paris Climate Agreement uh, targets um, by 2050. So, um, you know, this is a very important decade, um, this uh, decade ahead of us. Uh, and so, you know, my encouragement to everybody listening is hopefully um, this has given you a starting point to start thinking about um, how you can show up um, better for yourself, for your own health and well-being, but also uh, contributing to planetary health. Wow. I, I like this tension between we can make a difference individually, but also we need systemic change, too. And I think the college students today really get that. What would you share with them as your final words of wisdom? Well, I would say that, you know, especially if you're a new grad, just think about a couple of things. One is, what is the worthwhile problem in the world that you're trying to solve with your work as you set out in the quote unquote real world, right? So find out, figure out that juicy problem that makes, that makes, you, uh, makes your hair stand up on end or makes you wanna take action, that makes you wanna go out there and make a difference. So figure out what that worthwhile problem is. Uh, and then you know, usually the rest of the steps in, in exploring that journey uh, pan out. Uh, and then the other thing I would say is that, yes, there's a lot of uncertainty and uncertainty can be very destabilizing. It can make us really anxious when we don't know what's gonna happen in the future. Uh, but if we just take a moment to reflect, We've always lived in an uncertain world. I think we sometimes delude ourselves to think that we know what's going to happen in the future, but uh, uncertainty is a core part of our everyday existence, even before COVID and even before these crises. But I like to think of uncertainty also as possibility, because uh, you know maybe my encouragement would be to think of what else is possible, you know, and to start to. Uh, opening uh, up your imagination and to use the uncertainty. We don't know how things are going to pan out, which is also actually good, which means that all of these disaster scenarios that we are imagining, they may not pan out the way that we are thinking they may. And what are the other possibilities? What is the world um, that we want to create? Uh, uh, and then to sort of go out and um, get busy in helping uh, solve that problem. I love those final words, and I've loved this entire conversation. So thank you so much for being with us today, Parneet. Um, last question is, are, are you going to be writing a book? I feel like, <laughs> I feel like you could. <laughs> yes, definitely. No, this is something that I've been wanting to do for a while, and I just haven't gotten around to it. But yes, thank you for that uh, encouragement. I uh, hope to write a book someday soon. We'll make sure we share that out if you do. And thank you again, and go Ducks. Yes, go Ducks. Thank you so much for this conversation, Caitlin. It was lovely to connect with you. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to our guests and details about how to stay in touch. 
Until next time, thanks for listening to The Duck Stops Here.